Hey Kyle, here's a blast from the past. It's Don Mira from episode number 67. I am currently basically stuck on the island of Bali with its benefits and drawbacks. And to be quite frank, more benefits than drawbacks. But I wanted to reach out to you and the rest of the listeners and check in with everyone and remind everyone to keep their head about them. In these uncertain and tumultuous times, it's very easy to start getting anxious and overindulge our emotions in the feeling of uncertainty. As a photojournalist and just in so many aspects of my life, my life has been a roller coaster of uncertainty and the feeling that life sometimes is living me and I'm not living my life. And the reality is life is not normal right now and wanting it to be normal creates tremendous stress and anxiety that is self-inflicted. So let's focus on what we actually do have control over, which are our emotions. Donald Mira. Great to hear your voice, man. Hope you're doing well. If anyone listened to my last podcast with Brian Callen, they'll know that I started it with a story about going in a canoe with my housemates a couple weeks back and uh, them fucking on the canoe while I was spearfishing about 100 yards away and then diving down and seeing a juvenile great white shark and coming up and watching them in doggy style. Uh, There is a chapter two to the story of my housemates who are part of my quarantine crew. Uh, We have a rat problem in our house, and uh, I've been teaching my housemate how to... um, (laughs) I've been teaching him archery because I'm going to take him hunting. And... uh, he just said, it was like 10 minutes ago. He's like, dude, there's a huge rat in the attic. Should I shoot it? <laughs> Hell yeah, you should shoot it. I want you to get your first kill. And I can't take you hunting right now, so let's do it in the house. <laughs> so we got him up on a ladder in the attic. And he drew back, put a broadhead on his uh, on his arrow. And he nailed the freaking thing. So my housemate, the killer, just nailed his first rat point blank 10 yard shot with a fucking bow and arrow. Oh, it's the little things. Those kinds of things bring me great joy. I just released a new short story on my website, kyle.surf, about my attempt to stay silent and not use my phone for a whole day. You can go to kyle.surf and go to the writing section to check it out. This episode of the podcast is with Hunter Motz. Hunter is the author of The Straight A Conspiracy, Your Secret Guide to Ending the Stress of School and Totally Ruling the World, and he is the co-host of Mixed Mental Arts podcast with Brian Callen. I will link to both his book and his podcast in the show notes below. This podcast is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD products. I use their CBD tincture every night before I go to bed. It helps me with muscle soreness and sleep. And I use their CBD MCT oil in the morning. So if you want to check out some of their products, go to scmedicinals.com or check it out in the description below. Type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off. Hope you're all doing well out there. And without further preamble, please welcome to the podcast, Hunter Motz.
get it going. Hunter Motts, not in the house. Um, I wanted to start off uh, asking you about education and how our education system has been upended along with every other system in this country recently. Um, but a lot of the norms and um, assumptions that students and parents walk around with around learning have also been upended um, because now most of humanity is being homeschooled. Um, and I wanted to ask you, first of all, what kinds of assumptions we walk around with about learning mm-hmm. um, and how we can how we can identify a few of those assumptions before we actually get someone to try and start learning. Well, I think the first thing to realize about assumptions is, is that they are so baked in and they unconsciously drive us without even realizing it. There's a great, great quote from James Baldwin that the great force of history is that it lives within us and that we are unconsciously driven by it, right? So we get acculturated as kids and as adults into all these ways of thinking and believing that we aren't even aware of, right? So a really obvious, simple one to start with is the, and this is where we open the Straight of Conspiracy, the book that I co-wrote, which is the idea that people are born smart, right? We all sort of have internalized this idea that some people are naturally good at things, some people naturally aren't, right? Some people are natural math people, and we say these things all the time, right? And that's why we ended up writing our book, because we would hear kids say, like, I didn't get the math gene, or I don't have a natural ear for languages, or I'm just not a writer. And, you know, it's so, it's so assumed that that is true, that people don't even stop to think what that actually means. And what you're actually saying there is that I am doomed to fail in this subject, so why would I ever try? (laughs) And the result of that is is that you don't try, and you don't do the very, very basic actions that are required to do well in learning anything, right? So we would have all these students who would say, I didn't get the math gene, and then you'd be like, okay, well, let's take a look at your math textbook. And it comes out, and it's still in the cellophane. Like you literally haven't even opened the thing. So yeah, you, you hear the crease open. of it open. <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow, like your baseball card collection, if it was in this kind of mint condition, would be worth a fortune, right? You know, so we don't even realize that these things that we've internalized are driving all of our choices. And so what we would do in working with students is, is like, okay, that's a, that's a, we'll treat this as a scientific hypothesis. Hypothesis is you didn't get the math gene. You don't have a natural ear for languages. That's the hypothesis. Now we have to test that hypothesis. So let's go and test it by trying some things. First, let's open that math textbook, right? <laughs> let's take a look at it. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the way that most math textbooks are designed, for example, there are actually a lot of them are not badly written. Some of them are terribly written, but a lot of them are not bad. And, you know, it'll be that, you know, unit 7.2, right? And you have a series of questions. And then in the two to three pages before, it has explained exactly how you would do this. Very often, it's been so dumbed down that it's literally, there is an example problem that they have worked through, and all they've done in the question is change the numbers. So when you get right down to it, all you have to do is plug those numbers in. And so we would get students doing that and we would find, oh, you, you don't actually know, you know, for example, what a right angle is or what the power rule is. There are these very basic things that you don't know. So let's just keep clearing up what those rules are and what those terms mean. And suddenly you find that it moves from 
I didn't know the math gene, that, that we've falsified that hypothesis because you've actually started to get things right, but also that you actually find that, oh, is that I never did the work because I never thought it would pay off. Um, and so now you're in a totally different area. And I know, Kyle, that on a personal level, you've also gone through a journey with your own feelings about you as a writer. Um, so maybe you want to talk about what that journey is, because it's a very universal journey. Well, even beyond writing, when I went to school for most of the time spent um, at the building, I had a belief that I was stupid um, because I think in large part, I had a really hard time sitting still as a kid. Mm -hmm. My mom always talks about how when I was a kid, I would literally sprint into bed and then fall asleep <laughs> immediately after. <laughs> And I, th I think that my life is, uh, is really an example of needing to move while learning, um, whether I'm doing, you know, learning about the ocean. I love being in the ocean while I'm learning about it. Or um, if I'm writing, I like writing about things that I'm doing. I, I, I like learning about shit and also doing it at the same time. And I find that that's how the information gets internalized um, best for me. Um, which I just didn't know until I was a junior in high school and had the opportunity to change schools from public school, um, which I would, I was, had, a, probably a C plus average in most of my classes, except when it came to, um, public speaking or any kind of project that I had to do, had to do with being out in the field. I would always do very well on those kinds of projects. Um, and when I changed schools to um, an independent study program, all of a sudden I had a chance to both learn while moving and also take projects and lessons from the beginning to the end. It wasn't fractured in a six period day. Um, I would work on one project for months. And it was actually when I was a senior in high school that I started learning about the banking system and the impact that um, citizens can have through where they keep their money on environmental and social issues. It's a really leveraged form of, of um, activism. And it was kind of random that I was learning about it, but um, I had a really great tutor at the time and I took that project all the way through and, and focused on our uh, influence as citizens to create change through banking for three years. It turned into a, a huge project for me. But um, when I look back on that time, it kind of set me up for the kind of career that I'm in now. Was that really like long-term and integrated learning? Um, we were talking about Chile right before this podcast, but one of my first projects that I did was make, make a short documentary on how um, Bank of America was the largest financier of coal power globally and how they were financing this coal plant that was going in on a beach at a pristine Chilean surf break. So I actually had a chance to go feel my toes in the sand um, and then think about how my money while being in Bank of America was being used to finance a coal power plant. And that's a lesson that I'll keep for the rest of my life. I don't think that I would learn it um, nearly as much if I was uh, just in a classroom. So there you hit on another assumption, right? Which is that learning happens in the classroom, right? 
that we we have this very strong picture that has been you know put into our minds by our culture that there should be rows of desks, children should be sitting stock still, no one must be moving, much like a slaughterhouse. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, you just want to start singing Pink Floyd right now, right? Like you know that it's this very sort of you know (laughs) rigid. You know, that's 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 what education is supposed to look like. Right. But again, you know, culture binds and blinds. Right. So, you know, our culture has has bound us to this idea and blinded us to other ways of thinking. But let's, you know, pan out a little bit. I mean, you know, we're both friends with Chris Ryan. And so, you know, it's not easy. It's not hard for us to slip into that paleo perspective. And what does learning look like within a tribe? And well, you know, learning is actually mediated by the emotion of awe right? Awe is the emotion that drives learning. So you are in awe of somebody, you're like, oh my God, that person is so good at hunting or basket weaving or cooking or whatever. And so, you know, you're drawn to them and you want to spend time around them. You start hanging around with them. And then as you're hanging around with them, you start to pick things up, right? And the first things you pick up are the very superficial, right? So the first thing is you start walking like them, you start talking like them, you do your hair like them, you know, you want to wear the clothes, you want to do all the stuff that doesn't actually really matter, but that makes you feel cool and connected and kind of like them. And then over time, that person takes you aside and is like, hey, kid, it's not about how you do your hair. It's about this. Let me show you, right? And then they break down whatever their skill is and you spend time and then you start to acquire the sort of the procedural stuff, like this is how you weave a basket, this is how you hunt for fish, this is how we do these things. And then over time, you start to internalize the ways of thinking about this stuff, which is the deep, deep learning. Um, and then at a certain point, you then have become a master of the thing, and then you're ready to transmit that knowledge to the next generation. At no point was a desk used in the making of this knowledge transfer, <laughs> right? So, you know... In fact, you realize that what's odd is not that Kyle wanted to be moving around and doing things and having sensory experiences and be with other people and be connected. What's odd is the idea that you could learn without those things, right? Um, and, you know, uh, the, our, our culture is lovingly called in the academic literature the weird culture, which stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And it is weird. On any number of levels, it is not normal. It is not like any other culture, right? We isolate, which is not what humans supposed to do. Like we're all having this very direct experience of isolation and it feels so unnatural and so unhealthy. The worst thing that you can do to a human being is put them in solitary confinement. And that's, but that's what our culture is primed for. Um, you know, I have uh, a joke. I have a joke about that where, um, uh, I, I, I talk about solitary confinement and, uh, I say, you know, it's, it's strange because solitary confinement is basically like timeout for adults, which is strange because whenever I got timeout as a kid, all I would think about was revenge. <laughs> well, I think that probably that's true for some of the adults who are in timeout as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 and the, the, the key thing is, is that actually, so humanity's superpower is social learning. Um, if you give, uh, if you go to Joe Henrik's The Secret of Our Success, you know, there's always been this question of why did humanity sort of become the dominant species on the planet? And if you give an IQ test to a chimp, uh, an orangutan, and a human toddler, you find that on uh, spatial reasoning, we are no smarter than the chimp. On quantitative reasoning, math, 
We're no smarter than the chimp, right? Um, and the only area this is to an, which, this is to an infant. It's, sorry, to, just break toddler, down what 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 spa- yeah. break down what spatial reasoning and quantitative reasoning are. What are examples yeah, 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 of those? Yeah. So, so we have a toddler. So, which is the important part of having a toddler is is that it's a pre culture human, right? It's a human that has no culture, right? So, a little kid is not drawing on because when you're when you're doing math, you're not drawing on your mathematical abilities. You're drawing on thousands and thousands of years of accumulated mathematical knowledge, right? The concept of zero is not something that if we take a child and stick it on its own, and sadly, these experiments have been done, you have wolf children, you have children that have been raised in extreme isolation, they don't even come up with language. Like a human being on their own does not develop language, they don't develop numbers, they don't develop math, they don't develop shit, because an individual human being is dumb, right? Um, so a toddler is a pre-culture human being. So you have to normalize, if you're going to do a comparison with other, other members of the great apes, you have to compare a toddler to an orangutan and to a chimpanzee, right? And then you're testing different aspects of intelligence. So spatial reasoning is your ability to figure out shapes. Like how do shapes figure out together? How do you navigate a spatial environment you know, round, you know, round peg in a square hole, square, square peg in a square hole, that sort of thing, right? Uh, quantitative reasoning is numbers, amounts, right? Which is sort of the very basic level, the building block of what math would be, right? Um, and so uh, if you, and then causal reasoning is the third category, which is basically figuring out how do things cause other things, which is really what science is about. Science is about all about figuring out causality, right? So, you know, uh, why does uh, why do people get sick from from the why do people get sick? Oh, you figure it out. Oh, there's a virus. It's called the coronavirus. It does this. This is how they get sick. Then they die, or they don't. Hopefully, they get better. But the point is, is that you have to figure out that you know it's the virus that's causing the disease. And there have been lots of human beings. Again, are bad at this shit on their own. There have been lots and lots of theories of disease. There was the miasmatic theory where they thought that diseases were caused by smells. Um, and so that's part of the reason why in medieval Europe, everybody would perfume the shit out of themselves because they were like, oh, if I don't smell, then I won't get disease and I won't die. Um, or there was the four humors theory of disease, right? Where people were like, oh, there are these different fluids in the body. And it kind of makes sense that if they're all in balance, that you'd be healthy. So there's blood. There's yellow bile, there's black bile, uh, and there's, you know, I think lymph was the fourth one. And so the point is you have to balance these things, and we're all trying to balance these these different humors. And if one of the humors gets too high, then you get a fever. And if another one gets too low, then you get this, 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 right? So there have been lots and lots of sort of causal theories of how does disease happen, right? And the point of, you know, the scientific community, right, is, is that, okay, you have a theory and sort of like we did with the theory about the math gene. It's like, okay, that's your idea. Let's see how that holds up against the evidence and we'll test that, right? But again, science is done as a community. Individual scientists, if you, the, the guy who's on his own in his basement is probably not gonna do shit, right? <laughs> so, um, and then the fourth category of intelligence is, is social intelligence, right? And what you find is that on spatial intelligence, quantitative reasoning, uh, causal intelligence, we are n- no smarter than chimps, right? Orangutans are sadly the, the least intelligent of the three. Very cute. Um, everybody loves a redhead, but 
they're they're the least intelligent. But the but the chimps and the human toddler are not that far apart. The only area in which there's a huge huge gap is social intelligence. Humans are off the charts in terms of social intelligence, and there are actually visual tells that that is our superpower. And one of the biggest visual tells is that our eyes have very clear visible whites. Um, so if you look at an animal's eye, it's mostly like, look at a chimp's eye and it's mostly black. You can't really see the whites of the eyes, right? And those are called the sclera. So you can't, there's not really a clear visible sclera. Humans have a huge visible sclera. And the advantage of having that huge visible sclera is I can track where your eyes are going really, really well. So the ability to transmit information socially between us I have your all your all your facial muscles, which this is an incredibly powerful organ for transmitting information. That's why you should never get a facelift or get Botox, um, because actually they found that people who get facelifts they not only uh, struggle to communicate emotional information, they struggle to receive it because it's done through mirroring. And so that's part of the reason why you may have noticed that people who have had a lot of work done on their face potentially are a little bit cuckoo. Um, because they're basically cut off from all of that emotional information being transmitted, but also the sclera, right. Enable us to track eye tracking. I can see what you're looking at. So if you start to think about even that transmission of visual knowledge, right. You know, we're out in the field, right. And I'm watching you watch the deer or whatever it may be. And I have the ability without you having to verbally say anything to know where you're looking, what you're tracking what you're paying attention to, all of that information is very, very easy for me to capture. And this ability, this social intelligence means that humans are far ahead in terms of being able to accumulate culture over generations and generations and thousands of years. So it's not that other animals can't transmit culture. For example, um, you know, chimps fish for termites, uh, there's a really great example of Japanese macaques who were eating sweet potatoes, and one of them dropped it in the river and noticed that the river washed off the sand, and that therefore it was much more pleasant to eat the sweet potato. And that knowledge not only got transmitted within that troop of macaques, but got transmitted between troops of macaques. So there was this very visible example of, oh, there was this cultural in uh, innovation among Japanese macaques, and it was transmitted among them, right? So it's not that other species can't transmit culture. They just can't transmit and accumulate culture at the level that we can because we have this huge social intelligence. So now you know that, okay, if we really care about education and we really want to transmit knowledge and information. We should be promoting sociality. And what happens in school? <laughs> you're told you can't talk. You're told to work on your own. You're told to cover up your work, right? And you're told... And if you share your work or you talk to anybody else, it's called cheating, and that's bad. So you've demonized the core of how humans transmit culture. But because culture is so powerful, and that's what you've seen everybody around you doing, that becomes the norm. And so we all do this thing that is utterly against the science, utterly against how human beings utterly actually work, and totally against our natural intuitions, like young Kyle that was the last thing that he wanted to do. And suddenly when you put him in an environment where he can do what he was primed to do and what he wanted to do, he thrives. Wow. Uh, what are some um, techniques or, um, or yeah, what are some techniques that you would recommend 
to students now being at home in this ultra isolated environment, but in some ways with the power of internet and with a lot of new free time that people have, I think that there is an opportunity to create new culture in school. Um, and I, we've had conversations in the past about the difference between making systemic shifts and making individual shifts. And we both agree that it's going to be a long time before the school system is changed on a systemic level, but we can make individual shifts to the way that we learn right now. Um, are there any tactics that you would recommend for students at home right now to be learning more effectively? Yeah, I think that's the point is, is that, you know, follow your instincts. Like, I mean, I think that's the point is, is that, you know, how many years were there where Kyle loved group projects and loved project-based work and, you know, enjoyed connecting with people and moving around, but was sort of feeling shamed into not being able to do those things. Like, you know, my wife's brother, uh, you know, he's a very physical guy. He like weight lifts professionally and is a trainer and all that sort of stuff. And for him, it was, he would write up all of his material on the walls and he would pace around his room like a lion in a cage because he needed to be moving in order to learn. And like, that's great. There was, you know, another, um, you know, another girl that I knew in college, she used to teach imaginary lectures to her stuffed animals because she needed that sense of so social interaction. And so she would have to like figure out a lesson plan and she'd be thinking about how she was going to teach them to us. And so it becomes this very imaginative play exercise where you're processing the information and, you know, then she would field questions, you know, like, Oh, you're going to have this problem. And you know that she was an actress. So that was her way of coping and dealing with it. You know, you can hop online, you can talk to people about it. You can talk to your parents, you can talk to your brothers. The fastest way to learn is to teach because if you have to teach it to somebody, then you really have to understand it. You have to have real versatility with it. So a lot of people will make up uh, study guides, right? So Ed Solomon, who's one of my mentors, he wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Men in Black and like a whole bunch of other movies. He, in college, he would make these giant study guides. And then by the time he had like made the giant study guide and arranged it the whole way and done the thing, he knew the material and didn't need the study guide because it's the act of having to process the knowledge, right? And it's very basic things. It's literally like building a puzzle. So you have a thing, it makes no fucking sense to you. Like when you, when you do a puzzle, the jigsaw puzzle, the first thing you do is you turn all the pieces up the right way so you can see what there are. And then you start to figure out, oh, where are all the edges, right? I'm just going to put all the edge pieces together. And then you start to see how all the edge pieces go together. And then you go in there and there and there and there. It's the same thing, you know, if you're struggling with something, you know, literally just start by turning the pieces up the right way. Don't even worry about what this thing means. Just clarify what the words are and get really, really clear on what all the words are. So it's like, okay, I'm going through this passage. I'm not trying to make sense of it. And I just underline you know, the 10, 20, 100 words that I don't know what they mean. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to clarify all those words. Okay, now I understand what all those words mean. And I've got them to a real level of clarity. And we can talk specifically about how you do that. But now that I've gotten those words to a level of clarity, now when I start to go through, now I can start to take phrases and break down phrases and start to make sense of them. And then I can start to connect up all the pieces and make sense of the passage. But the, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is, 
you know, a lot of people do what's called corn on the cob reading, right? And so they will go and they will read a passage like a cartoon character eating a corn on the cob, like row, ching, row, ching, you know, and then they'll get there and they'll be like, that made no sense to me. And it's like, of course it made no sense to you. And that's because even there is an assumption where people have this assumption of reading, right? And reading is, that's, that's not a very useful term, right? Because let's say I give you uh, a, a, like easy example, right? Let's say I give you a children's book, right? Hop on pop, you know, cat in the hat or whatever. How quickly and easily can you read that? Hopefully very easily. <laughs> right. Now let's say that I give you hop on pop in Chinese or Greek. How quickly can you read that? You don't know about my history. I'm fluent in seven languages, Hunter. Well, that's amazing. So, but the but the point is, is that if you think about, you know, the material is no more complicated. It's just that because it's in a, in a different language, you'd really have to break down what does each word mean? How do they link up? How do they connect? In the same way, like, yeah, you can read Hop on Pop or, you know, The Cat in the Hat or whatever super quickly. Reading a Shakespearean sonnet or a piece of Shakespeare? Fuck no. It's firstly... Is is Shakespeare English? Yes, it's English, but it's Elizabethan English. It's 400-year-old English. There's a lot of word changes. Words, some of the words' meanings have mutated. They don't mean what they used to mean. Plus, it's, you know, super sophisticated language where he's crafted the shit out of that, and there's illusions and all sorts of other things on that. And then on top of that, the illusions are... Think about it. Like I, I make references to '80s or '90s movies with students that I work with now to totally go over their head because they've never seen The Goonies, right? Shakespeare is making references to stuff that was contemporary and current to him. Like he's referencing things that are happening in politics in the 1600s. He's making references to, you know, the, what the Tudors did or whatever the hell else, right? And so, of course, if you're not familiar with what the Tudors did, it's going to go right over your head, right? That's Tudor with a D, not with a T. That might have been confusing. So, like, Henry VIII, you know, Elizabeth I, you know, Bloody Mary, you know, Henry VII, all that stuff. So, the point is, if you're not familiar with that history, of course those illusions are going to go over your head. So, the, the speed at which you can read a passage of Shakespeare or the speed at which you can read hop on pop in Mandarin or Greek or whatever it is, is very different. And so you have to, you have to understand that reading different pieces of reading require different reading speeds and people fetishize reading speed. They think reading, you should like smart people should be able to read quickly. So I'm going to read quickly but there's a great Woody Allen quote where he said, I'm taking a speed reading course right now. We read war and peace in 20 minutes. It's about Russia. <laughs> like if you oh, read war so and peace. In- <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, well, I'm a good example of someone who was not a big reader growing up. I spent most of my time in the ocean or on a half pipe, uh, working vigorously to break my arm as many times as possible. <laughs> How'd you and do? It wasn't, um, I was very successful in that endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Four broken arms. Count them. <laughs> more, <laughs> more broken arms than books I had read up until the time I was 16. Good. But I did um, start to notice that most of the people who I respected and wanted to speak like and think like were big readers. And they were all... Um, 
that was a commonality between them. Um, there's the quote, readers are leaders. And I just noticed that everyone who I would have on my podcast and, and people who were very clear thinkers also read a lot of books. So I decided that I was going to become a good reader in a very kind of systematic and athletic way in the same way that I would go out and skate a half pipe for an hour at least you know, in the morning, right when I woke up, I decided to sit down for an hour and read a book. And, and now I'm uh, a pretty good reader. I will consistently wake up and spend the first hour of my day um, in in a book. And an another thing I've noticed is, is that it doesn't actually matter what I'm reading um, as much as it matters just that I am reading, similar to exercise. It doesn't really matter how you're moving your body, but just the fact that you are moving your body. Um, so I do think that, yeah, while there are a lot of, um, while we are social creatures and we, while we are group learners, there is something that I've noticed about reading that's a really um, leveraged impact, has a really leveraged impact on learning. Well, and I, I think that's the thing is, is that, you know, what reading is, is it is actually a social activity. It's not social in that you're hanging out with people. But, you know, I mean, lots and lots of people throughout history have written about, you know, it's an opportunity to hang out with some of the smartest people ever. Right. You get into a dialogue with them. It's inherently conversational. You read a, if you're reading in the right way. And that's the other thing, too, is, is that people think that your job is just to sort of passively you know, inhale the information. If you're reading in the right way, it's a dialogue. Like you read it and then you're thinking, what would that look like? Why is he saying that? What's he setting up? You know, what's her motivation? Like, what's she driving at? Where is she going with this? Whatever it may be. Right. But inherently it is a dialogue and it is a, it is a conversation with yourself. And there's, there's actually, there's an article that came out around this where they interviewed a, a guy who had been in jail and in solitary he'd been he was in jail for killing someone and then there was a prison riot and he was accused of killing a bunch of people in the prison riot and so they put him in solitary and he'd been in solitary for decades now and he had used that time to read and you know his bookshelves are surrounded with you know what i can't even remember who are, uh, he really uh, who were the writers that he really liked he really liked james baldwin for one he was obsessed with james baldwin um, and anyway, there were some other authors as well, but he basically said like, I'm not alone. I have all these friends. Like I, you know, spend all of my time and I think of James Baldwin, like, you know, uh, like, like a close friend. And so that's the thing is, is that reading, reading, I think that's part of the problem is, is that that corn on the cob reading that a lot of people internalize as the, as the model for how you should read is a solitary activity. When you're actually really engaging with the text, it is not a solitary activity at all. And, you know, people fall in love with writers and they fall in love with writers for a reason because they feel connected to them. And because it becomes in in some ways, it's, you know, if you think about the, the interactions that you have with a lot of people, it's very superficial. It's very sur surface level. Like if you're reading a writer who is getting really intimate and really vulnerable and exposing how they think, you can actually get closer to that writer through their books than you would get in person uh, with a lot of people with whom you just have very superficial conversations. Um, they they always say, if you love a writer, never meet them. <laughs> well, that's also true. 
<laughs> because you'll get true. the best of that writer. You'll get the yeah. the most depth in thought and the most clarity through their pages. And uh, it tends to be a disappointment when you are speaking with them and it's their first draft. Like what we're doing right now is a first draft. If we could clean this conversation up through seven iterations, um, at least I would probably sound more articulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's oh, the mighty, but their feet are made of clay. Um, and you should never meet your heroes. And and that is that is actually true. And I mean, that's sort of the, you know, the, the that's really the thing with the genius myths is that the genius myths, what we hear about Edison or Newton or Einstein or any of these guys, those are those are hero myths. They're myths of how these people are. Like those are in the same way that, you know, the Hindus have their pantheon or the Catholics have their saints. You know, modern sort of weird culture has its saints. It has its gods. And they are these gods of the intellect. And the problem is, is that we look at that statue, that icon, and we think that's who the person was or what they did. And it's the same thing as what happens with Instagram models or anything else. It's all heavily fucking photoshopped. And if you think that that photoshopped thing is the reality, you are sorely mistaken. But just as the photoshopped Instagram model, like people will make themselves sick and starve themselves to death to try and achieve this thing that is actually unattainable. We also make ourselves sick by trying to copy the role model of the genius myth, right? So you know, Edison, right, sat there and just came up with the light bulb out of nowhere. So you'll see a lot of people emulating that behavior where they're just sitting around and hoping that inspiration will strike or that, you know, genius will come to them, right? Or, you know, uh, people think that, you know, and then when that doesn't happen, people start to think, oh, well, I must not be one of those special people. So why should I even bother? And why should I even try? Right? So these very unhealthy stories. And so in terms of a thing that you can do right now, investigate your heroes. It's a great exercise. Like just do a little digging and a little research. Like who's somebody that you look up to and go beyond the genius myth and find out what their process was. So, okay, you really like JK Rowling, right? How did she write Harry Potter? What did she go through? What did she do, right? You're a huge fan of this actor or that actress, right? You know, what did they go through? How did they achieve that success, right? Or, you know, you're a big fan of, you know, this surfer or that surfer. Um, you know, follow that. See what they did. And what you'll find out is, is that, you know, while the genius myth is unattainable and is about them being a special person who is just naturally that way, you will find that the process is actually eminently doable, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll find out that it's there are steps you can take and actions that you can be doing that are utterly replicable. So, for example, Edison did not invent the light bulb. It was invented 45 years before he was born. There was a well-known problem with the light bulbs that had been invented, which is that they lasted less than two minutes because the filament would burn out. And so everybody knew that the problem was that you needed to find a better long-lasting filament. So what Edison did was he was one of the first people to set up an industrial research lab. He raised money, he hired a bunch of people, and he had them systematically test 10,000 different materials until they found one that worked, which was carbonized bamboo, right? But it wasn't him. It was a team backed by venture capital, right? And it was a well-known problem, and it wasn't his invention. So you move from this idea of this mythical figure who just sat there to someone who 
gathered the team and gathered the resources to fix the well-known problem to be able to find something that was more scalable and all of that. So it's it's the same thing. And, you know, even, you know, someone like Newton or someone like Einstein, they become the figurehead for a lot of scientists who are working at the time. And, you know, what someone like Newton or Einstein does is that they take these little theories that had already existed and they aggregate them into something bigger or more compelling or more coherent. And my personal story on this is that my personal hero as a child were Watson and Crick who were the guys who discovered the double helix of DNA. And then I had the opportunity to live with James Watson for an entire year before college. And, oh, but the mighty, but their feet are made of clay. Like, he was definitely not the guy that that I, <laughs> I had believed in. So, you know, yeah. Um, um, I, I want to uh, chew on one uh, point that you made earlier, which is um, people expect that they can just sit around and these great ideas will come to them. Um, I want to push back on that idea because I think that right now um, we're in a time where people have never been less bored. And um, there's a book that I really love. It's a a quick read um, called The War of Art. Have you read it? It's a great book. Great book, right? And he and the author talks about resistance. And he's, mm-hmm. I think on the first page, uh, he says, there's a secret that professional writers know that amateurs don't. It's not the writing part that's hard. It's the sitting down to write part that's hard. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed that for me, I, I can learn fairly well if I'm not distracted. Um, and mm-hmm. my relationship with my phone uh, is one that, um, <laughs> let's just say the, my relationship with my phone is the most complicated relationship I have in my life period. Um, mm-hmm. and I've had to develop a, a militant relationship with it where now when I write, I keep my phone off and in the other room, I, on a, I'm on a pretty strict social media diet where I won't check it until 3 p.m. And the other day, um, my housemates and I, given that we're in um, the largest social experiment in our history right now, we have been conducting little social experiments on our own. So, for example, um, for one day, we make it so that everyone in the house has to speak Spanish. Um, and on, on another day, we did a, um, a whole 24 hours of silence where no one in the house could speak to each other. We couldn't speak to anyone else. We had to cook dinner in silence. And um, that was a day where I was reading. Um, I was actually, I'm, I'm reading, uh, what's the book? Uh, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, which I'm sure mm-hmm. you've checked out. And when I was finished reading, um, I just sat there for 20 minutes in my backyard, sort of bored. But this feeling of internalize, internalizing the knowledge um, really got turned up for me. Whereas, and I, and I had the insight that a lot of times I will read and then I'll go straight to my phone and then I will forget what it is that I read. Um, so, I, I was, I'm just hoping that you could make some points on that, 
kind of culture of always doing and never being bored and the pitfalls of that. Yeah. So, you know, learning is consolidated. Learning has to be consolidated, right? So you, it's the same thing as digesting food, right? It's not that the second it goes past your lips, that food is internalized and incorporated into your body. It has to be broken down in your digestive tract. Those, those nutrients have to be absorbed and then it has to be reassembled into other things. So learning has to be consolidated in the same way. And a lot of when that happens is in sleep, right? So sleep is a large part of where, um, you know, all that knowledge that you've observed, observed and absorbed during the day is then consolidated and made part of your, your sort of permanent memory, right? Um, and, you know, that's why if you disrupt people's sleep, you have utterly screwed up their learning, right? So these are also things that are not looked at traditionally in school, right? Is how are kids sleeping? You never, you never, teachers don't ask that. They're not permitted to ask that. It would be seen as sort of invasive and not your domain, which is part of the thing. We don't look at the whole person, right? And we have to be looking at, you know, food, diet, exercise, all of those things. But yeah, so sleep is super important, but also that learning can also be consolidated at other times. It can be uh, consolidated when you're sitting still and just sort of reflecting on it. It can also be consolidated while running and exercising, right? So, you know, one of the things that is generated when you exercise is um, uh, BDNF, which is basically this uh, growth factor in your brain. There's a great book called Spark that you might really enjoy by John Rady. Um, and it's all about the importance of exercise in terms of learning. So, for example, there's one story that he gives in there of a school that instituted a zero period and they would just make the kids show up early and run. And they found that that massively improved attention, it massively improved retention, um, and it also massively improved, you know, math and English learning. So, you know, all of these things are super important. And again, like, it's very clarifying to go back to sort of the paleo experience and you think about, you know, how that learning was happening. Obviously, it was mixed in with physical exercise. It was mixed in with, you know, healthy sleep that wasn't disrupted by, you know, blue light or screens being on at night. Um, and, you know, there were periods of sitting and reflecting and just sort of really internalizing these things. The other thing is, though, that in terms of that knowledge consolidation is, is that, that's also a very specific metacognitive skill. And it's the first time I've mentioned that word on this podcast, but it's a really, really important word. So metacognition is thinking about your own thinking. Okay. So there's people do plenty of thinking, but the real game changer is when you start play that role of sort of anthropologist with yourself and you step outside your thinking and you're looking at your own thinking patterns and metacognition is what really makes effective learners because they don't just blindly believe I didn't get the math gene. They sit there and they reflect on them. They're like, why do I have that idea? Where did that idea come from? Right. Or they don't just think I'm stupid. They're like, why do I have that idea? I've noticed that I do really well in project work and that I want to move around and like I do do well in some things. So maybe the issue isn't that Kyle is stupid. The issue is, is that Kyle is not learning in the way that Kyle needs to be learning. So then we have a totally different problem. We have to do a totally different thing, right? But if you're not thinking about those things and you just sort of blindly believe whatever you believe, then you just get stuck repeating that pattern again and again for years, decades, a really, really long time. So part of that metacognition is, is that you are actively 
thinking about each piece of information and how it connects to what you already know or how it contradicts what you already know. Because human memory and human learning is relational, right? So it's not just that we're socially intelligent creatures. It's also that information within our own brains is relational. Like if you think about, you know, the structure of a brain, it's all these neurons connected in intricate webs and patterns and all that sort of stuff. And you can you can note this in your own life and we experience this all the time, right? So sometimes you'll you'll be trying to remember something and you can't remember it. And then you'll try and find ways into that memory, right? So what you'll do is you'll say, I can't remember her name, right? Where did I meet her? I met her with so-and-so and this person was there and this was on in the background and this was going on. And you're basically finding new paths into that memory, right? And so one of the big issues with people with, uh, with Alzheimer's and how badly people are affected by diseases like Alzheimer's is how much cognitive reserve they have. Because if you, if you have a brain that only sort of has one connection, right, and you lose that connection, you're done, right? There's no way for you to be able to relate that information. If you have a brain that is a really intricate web, it's not cat catastrophic if you lose one connection because there are other paths and other ways into that same information. So what that means is, is that you want to be for both for long-term mental health and also for making your own learning more effective. You always, always want to be taking each piece of knowledge and figuring out how it connects to everything. So you're constantly striving for more and more connections, right? So <clears throat> for example, let's say that you know, you have a piece of information and that piece of information is you're, you're learning, for example, Roman history, right? Well, what can you connect that to, right? You can connect that to, oh, I've watched Gladiator before, or I've watched these other movies before. I can break down some of the words that are being used in Roman history and see how they're related to English words that I already know, right? So now we're sort of really, you know, crossing disciplines, right? We're thinking about, you know, Hollywood movies, and we're thinking about English vocab, and then we're thinking about, you know, how it relates to, uh, you know, uh, things I know from economics or tools or whatever, or foods that I eat, or I might find some weird conflict where, you know, I find out that, hey, you know, tomatoes didn't enter Europe until the Colombian exchange, until Columbus arrived, and, you know, the Spanish brought them back from the Aztecs to Europe. So then I'm like, but wait a minute, Italian food is all tomatoes. So that's weird. So now I'm like, wait a minute. So then what were they eating back then? Like, what did the Romans eat? And then I look at it and it's a tomato free zone. And that's super arresting. And now I'm going to remember that because it's highly emotional, right? So you also want to be making all of this knowledge emotional because things that are emotional are memorable, right? We have students all the time who think they have a bad memory. Again, assumption. Where does that assumption comes from? That assumption comes from the fact that they struggle to remember their flashcards, right? But then you start quizzing them and being like, okay, uh, tell me the lyrics to your favorite artist, your favorite musician, rapper, whatever it is. Fucking chapter and verse, six albums worth, all comes out perfectly and all that sort of stuff. Or they're like, tell me about the uh, the plot of that SNL video that you've been watching or that you know movie that you've been watching chapter and verse, line for line, right? So the problem is, is that humans are primed to remember, you know, they're basically, they're sort of four memory techniques. Um, the worst one, the one that we most rely on in school is repetition. 
it's the least effective memory technique. And there's a whole story there that I'll tell you later. Um, the, the third most effective is logic. Things make sense. So in terms of that, that sort of reflective period of consolidating that knowledge, you want to think about why do these things make sense. So even the vocab thing is, why does it make sense that this thing is called this thing? Oh, I know that it makes sense because it fits with this other thing that I know. So then now that's a much more durable memory, right? Or the second one is emotion, right? Things that are funny, scary, gross, whatever, super remember. There's, you know, there's uh, what's called flashbulb memories, right? So everybody of a certain age remembers where they were on 9-11. Everybody of a certain age remembers where they were when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon or when JFK was shot or whatever, right? Those were such emotional moments that it becomes seared in our brains. Um, and then there's the super technique, which is the combination of logic and emotion, which is story, right? Stories connect information into, uh, you know, sequential actions, right? This happens and this happens. So this person did this and there's emotional charge all around those events. So what you really want to be doing <laughs> when you're sitting there and consolidating is there's the sort of the passive version of consolidating and there is there is value there because sometimes your brain is making connections on its own that you might not make on your own. But the other thing, the more active thing is to actively be carving stories and connecting the things that you are learning into stories you already know. So you end up with these really intricate story webs and those intricate story webs literally become webs in your brain of neurons that are connected together. When I was a sophomore in high school, we had to learn every country in Africa, and our teacher helped us learn it by making story rhymes. So, yeah. West Side Marijuana makes Niger Chad <laughs> suddenly eat some DJ treats. So, Western Sahara, Niger, Chad, Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, Eritrea, I think it's Djibouti. Is that how you pronounce it? Djibouti. Djibouti. <laughs> yeah. And then Eritrea. Sorry, I messed that yeah. up. But yeah, and there was a little story right there that I still remember to this day. 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 Another book that I'm, I'll tee you up with that I'm sure you've read is Moonwalking with Einstein. Yeah. Great book. Jo it's a great book. I believe it's Joshua Foyer. Uh, maybe. Foer. For, the Foer yeah. family is crushing it, by the way. Why is that? There's a, a whole series of, so there's there's like, I can't remember how many brothers. There's Joshua Foer. There's Jonathan Safran Foer. There's like a bunch of, like, one is the editor of the New Republic. One of them wrote Moonwalking with Einstein, and the other one is a big novelist. So what that tells you is, see, this, see that piece of information can mean one of two things. Either they got the, the writing gene or whatever, or alternatively, what that is, is it's a talent cluster. And there's something going on in that family and the way that now knowledge is being transmitted and everything else that makes it a really effective tribe, right? And what you find is that it, there's a, another great book to read, which is The Talent Code by Dan Coyle. Um, and you know, you will find that there are these talent clusters all over the world, right? Brazilian soccer players, female South Korean golfers, uh, female Russian tennis players, right? The Bronte sisters. Like there are all these little, you know, 
the mathematics and the physics that happened at the turn of the last century in Germany and Austria and in, in Central Europe, right, where you have Einstein and Bohr and, you know, uh, Emily Noether and like on and on and on and on. Like it's basically, you know, uh, you know, the Heisman, you know, on and on. Not Heisman, what am I saying? <laughs> That's the trophy. <laughs> you're, um, you're good until that point. Yeah. B- before we, I, I want to talk about talent clusters, but before we do, um, yeah. people are going to hate me if I don't uh, at least talk about Moonwalking with Einstein for a second. Yeah, it's for a sure. great book. Super fun. Um, it's about memory competition. And this journalist, um, Joshua Fowler, uh, he does a story on these memory competitions where people are asked to remember sequences of like a hundred numbers and they need to remember it in 40 minutes and then repeat it back. Um, and the way that he found the best, um, memory competitors do that is through spatial memory is they will create stories, um, and the, of a place. So it's what a lot of people call memory palaces. The numbers are a little bit harder because you have to chunk like three or five numbers into what could look like a word and then attach that word to a play, a well-known place. A better example and probably something more ac- um, applicable is if you're trying to remember an hour-long speech, let's say there are 10 subjects within that hour-long speech that you know you want to hit. And you're not going to remember it word for word, but you need to remember each sub- subject in a row. So what you can do is take your childhood home, which everyone has a very vivid memory of, and you picture yourself opening that door into your childhood home. And you know that the first topic in your speech is about pop culture. So you walk into your door and your living room is right there and you see Britney Spears doing a strip tease on your living room coffee table. <laughs> Pretty vivid image right there. Okay, mm-hmm. you you know, so that's going to get you into the pop culture part of your section, uh, of your speech. Then you're going to walk into your bathroom and you're going to see um, Albert Einstein taking a crap on your toilet. And you know that this is the part of your speech where you want to talk about the science behind pop culture, right? And I, I won't go through the whole house, but the point is the more vivid and, and and even more comical you can make your images in this space, the better that memory will get seared into you. And it allows you to remember a lot very quickly um, through this, this, um, technique of building a memory palace. Um, but the, the punchline to this book, Moonwalking with Einstein is that Joshua then after doing the story on memory competitions, um, enters one and he trains really, really hard for it. And he ends up winning the whole thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, he went in, the assumption he went in with was that some people just naturally had good memories. Having gone through that experience and proved that to himself, what he comes out with is, is that it is a skill that can be developed by anyone. Um, and there are specific techniques. And the memory palace that you're talking about, Kyle, is a technique that is 2,000 years old. So it was developed by the Romans, and it was how the Romans would do, would do speeches. And it comes out of a specific event where some Roman scholar whose name I don't remember um, basically was at a dinner party and a house collapsed and it killed everyone there. 
And he was able to reconstruct who the guests were by thinking about who had sat where at the dinner table. And he basically realized the power of spatial memory out of that and he developed this technique um, on the basis of that. And that was how Romans would remember, you know, these incredibly florid, complicated speeches because they're tapping into that spatial memory and they're turning everything into a story to make it more memorable. Um, so, I mean, it's just another good example of these assumptions are everywhere, but the, the basic assumptions, they all come down to one thing. People have assumptions that if it's not working, there's something wrong with them. And the actual assumption you should have is if it's not working, it means you're not doing it the right way and you have to just do it the right way. And it's then about figuring out what is the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, whether that's using memory palaces or using story or breaking words down or actually just reading more or giving yourself time to reflect or whatever it may be. Let's talk about talent clusters because I've noticed this um, with surfing where there are uh, mm -hmm. the top 32 guys who are on the world tour back when there was a world tour, uh, the good old days <laughs> of sports, uh, how retro. Um, and they are by and large way better than other local professional surfers. And it becomes evident when a truly world-class surfer comes to our local break here in Santa Cruz, where we have some really good surfers here in town, but there is, um, a, a huge difference between someone who is world-class and someone who is on this local level. And one of the reasons for that is because the world-class guy is constantly surfing waves with everyone else who's world-class and they begin to see waves differently than say a local pro mm -hmm. does. Um, so, I mean, we might just be beating a dead horse here with the point that, um, talent clusters and you can learn more quickly when you are around a group of smart people. But do you have any other insights that you want to make about talent clusters? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. One, firstly, by, you know, it's, it's this talent clusters are the antidote to genius myths, right? So by being, you know, it's, you're intimidated by people, you think they must just be magical people. Suddenly when you're hanging around them, right, it's the Wizard of Oz pulling, you pull back the curtain and you realize there is no wizard, right? And so suddenly it's like, you know, if I'm sitting here and trying to be you know, I'm going to expose my surfing ignorance again, but like say Laird Hamilton or Kelly Slater or whatever it is. Right. And all I do is just sort of watch them do these perfect uh, moves on YouTube. It's like, Oh, my God, no, no. but then when you're actually hanging out with them day by day and competing against them, suddenly it's like not such a big deal. Right. It seems much more doable. Um, and you're picking up tips and tricks of what they're doing. You're hearing, you're being exposed. So now that knowledge transmission has happened, right? So you're moving from intimidation to knowledge transmission happening within the group. The other thing is, is that what you learn from all these talent clusters is, is that people within talent clusters practice way more effectively than people outside of them. So one of the examples that um, Dan Coyle gives is Brazilian soccer players. So Brazilian soccer players will... Uh, practice, you know, in the favelas and things like that, and they'll play a game called Puchibal Gisal, right? It's basically like a condensed court. So it's a super small court, 
And because they couldn't often afford an actual soccer ball, they'll either play with a smaller soccer ball or they'll even play with a wadded up bit of paper or whatever, right? So it's the practice is harder than the actual game, right? And you're concentrating the things that you need to practice. So you need to concentrate, you need to practice, you know, evading other players, you need to practice ball control you have a ball that is not particularly bouncy and is smaller and harder to control. So you're basically, by making your practice more difficult and more intense, that means that you're really developing those skills so that when you're then playing with a bigger ball on a bigger court where you have more space, it becomes easier to do it, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, you can see all of those factors in what happened with female Russian tennis players. You know, uh, women in Russia were not thinking of tennis as a possible career. And then Anna Kornikova came around and suddenly it was like, oh, shit. Right. So you'll often have this pioneer who goes out and does it first. And suddenly what happens is that a whole generation of Russian girls are like, wait a minute, I can do that. Oh, my God, she's cool. I want to be Anna Kornikova. And so there's suddenly like in the wave of that pioneer, there's then a huge wave of people that come up after them. And then um, what you find is, is that, you know, Kornikova, I believe, went to the Spartak Tennis Academy in Russia. Um, and so she, uh, they, they practice in a very different way. First off, it's very Mr. Miyagi. They don't get to touch rackets initially. Um, and they will actually play in slow motion, um, basically pretending to hit a ball. And because they're doing that, what they're doing is they're slowing down the practice to enable you to really pay attention and isolate the movements, right? So this is one of the other big things that we talk about in the Straight A Conspiracy. And, you know, the other thing is that what we did with the Straight A Conspiracy, we referenced Moonwalking with Einstein in the chapter on memory, because what we noticed was there were so many great insights scattered across so many books, and we wanted to consolidate them into one place so that people didn't have to read 20, 30 books, and they could just read one kid-friendly, easy-to-read, digestible book that would have all the key points. But so the there's uh, three things that you really need to understand about your brain in order to understand learning. It's automaticity, attention, and emotion. Those are the three. Okay, so automaticity is you do anything often enough, it becomes automatic. Attention is how you pay attention to what you are automating, right? So you put your focus on your ABCs and then you really pay attention to them. And then when you've mastered your ABCs, now they're automated which means you don't really need to think about your ABCs. It's like easy, which now frees up your attention to focus on words. And then you really put your attention on stringing together words, right? And then you've automated your words, right? And so now you can say cat, bat, and hat all day long, and it's easy. And so you've automated them, you don't have to think about them, which now focuses your attention on thinking about sentences. So now you can really think about how you structure and you fit these things together and on and on and on. All, you know, all curricula are structured that way. It's sequenced out, right? You learn how to count, you learn how to do multiplication and sums, then you learn how to do, you know, algebra, which enables you to do calculus and on and on and on and on. So the relationship between automaticity and attention is how you learn everything. So what they're doing at the Spartak Tennis Academy is, is that they understand that you have to slow things down to make sure that you are doing them right because you don't want to automate the wrong way of doing it, which is what a lot of people end up doing, right? One really common example, and there's a student that I'm working with who has this really, really badly, and all those habits have to be unpicked, 
is guessing. So this kid has sat in class for decades, you know, and what happens is, is that he knows that the teacher asked him a question and that he, he didn't understand the process by which you're supposed to reach the answer. So what he does is he guesses because he, what he sees is he sees other kids get asked the question and they just spit out some answer. So he's like, oh, this is the game. We just spit out the answer, right? And then he spits out the answer and then the teacher is like, uh, no, that's not right. Nice try. This is the answer. So <clears throat> he has learned that what I should do in class is spit out garbage and then the teacher will tell me the right answer. So the dynamic that has been set up there is to incentivize the worst behavior and you have to force him to go slowly and go step by step and figure it out to arrive at the right answer, which can be frustrating for him and can be frustrating for me because now it's taking, you know, two, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes sometimes to get to one right answer, whereas before he would jump to a wrong answer. Um, but that's the process that's required. So in the same way, you know, if I'm a tennis coach and listen, I'm taking tennis lessons and I will tell you that it's now the power dynamic is reversed because now my coach is working on this with me, right? I just want to whack balls. I just want to whack balls all day and like do it, you know, do it fast, do the thing. And he has to force me to slow down and really make sure that we're doing it the right way and doing the right motion so that the habits you're ingraining are the correct ones. So that's the key things is that, you know, A, the there isn't that distance in talent clusters. So you're actually getting access to those mentors and those people you can learn from. Most of us, you should never meet your heroes, but you should meet your mentors. And most of us never get to meet our mentors. There's lots of things like we would love to learn how to play guitar like Eric Clapton, but most of us are never going to meet Eric Clapton, right? So most of us never get that opportunity. The people in talent clusters are privileged enough to get those opportunities. And then the other thing is, is that the practice is very, very different, right? It's they're making it harder for themselves, like the Fuchibalji style, right? With the little wadded up paper ball. And they're going slowly. They're focused on getting it right. And they know that it is their brain's job to make it quick. So speed is irrelevant. And that's the same thing with the speed reading thing. Like, you should never, in your learning, never focus on speed. Focus on accuracy. So it's quality, right? And then what will happen is, is that as you improve the quality, naturally your automaticity will do the work to make the learning faster. Yeah. One assumption I had about reading for a long time, um, and this shifted for me just recently, was that we read word by word rather than read yeah. that we read in chunks. Um, and mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss uh, was actually one of his early endeavors was teaching speed reading to people because he noticed mm -hmm. that the way our eyes move is not word by word, but left side of the page to right side of the page. And if you do that, you can, you can ingest the information better and more quickly. Um, so one of his like, earliest life hacks was a speed reading course that he did. This was way before the four hour work week. Um, I wanted to, uh, what you just said about the privilege of being able to get into a talent cluster is something that I wanted to ask you about because I've been really impressed, um, with your ability to 
get into certain talent clusters. I think I've known you for maybe three years now. And um, I, that, I noticed that very early on. The first thing that um, made me think that was that you uh, got Jordan Peterson on your podcast well before he became an international superstar. Um, and you identified him and and got him on your show. And for people who don't know, Jordan Peterson's uh, an author. He wrote 12 Rules for Life and then became this international sensation um, philosopher who uh, now sells out entire stadiums, you know, like the kinds of stadiums that Dave Chappelle would perform at. Um, can you tell me the story of reaching out to Jordan and what um, prompted you to do that? The wisdom of the crowd. Um, I deserve no credit for that. <laughs> so I think that's the that's the whole thing is is that you know once you understand like that's the that's the problem is is that you know you have to get your assumptions right. You have to get your assumptions right about the learning process. You have to get your assumptions right about you know what humans do well, and you have to get your assumptions right about um, intelligence, right? And so what what in terms of booking guests for mixed mental arts, the podcast that I co-hosted with Brian Callen, um, you know, what I would do is there was a few ways of getting guests. One was topic, right? Like what's the deal with that? We were interested in that. And then we just go dig around and we'd find who'd who'd written a book on it. You know, I would use the Amazon algorithms. Like I trust the crowd, you know, there's a pretty good sorting mechanism there. Like what's the best book on sleep or what are the best books on sleep? you know, maybe dig around a bit in the science, see who's, who are the authorities there. Right. So that was, that was sort of one thing or Brian specifically would have something that he was interested in or so there's something I was interested in or an individual that I trusted would say, you should get this person on. So for example, how did I discover Kyle Tierman? It's because Chris Ryan was like, you should get this guy Kyle on. And I was like, okay, Chris, I trust you. So a lot of it was trusting the, those social mechanisms. And then with Jordan Peterson, it was quite simply that I got lots of people had figured out that I was the one who was doing the booking. And I got lots and lots of tweets from people saying, you have to get this Jordan Peterson guy, you have to get this Jordan Peterson guy on. So we got Jordan on. Brian was like, I don't know who this guy is, but I trust you. So we interviewed him. And then uh, Brian recommended him to Joe Rogan and the rest is history. Wow. Um, so the reason why Joe had him on was because Brian recommended it. But it is, it is that social intelligence at, at work. There were a whole bunch of people on Twitter who had figured out this guy was, and they were trying to get other people to listen. I knew to listen. You know, Brian listened to me. Joe listened to Brian. <laughs> and then there you go. And then the crowd, again, identified him as someone who should have more of a voice. So it is that social intelligence at work. And what we have to do, I think, is in general, facilitate that social intelligence to be channeled more and more constructively. How did you prepare for that interview with Jordan Peterson? Uh, well, so I actually, I think I, the, the problem was, is that when, when Jordan was recommended, it was because of all of the transgender pronoun stuff that was happening in Canada. Right. So that was why he had been recommended was because of that. Um, and so, you know, I read the articles around that. But the, the thing that I think has been missed about Jordan um, and the thing that I missed in preparation for that interview was is that it's actually all of, and it's sort of like now again, like that has come full circle, right? So it's like, 
you know, the really interesting stuff that Jordan did is maps of meaning and all of this stuff on mythology and archetypes and sort of a lot of that very Jungian work. And so I missed that in that first interview. And it was sort of the thing that brought him to fame was the whole transgender pronoun thing. But it's actually, you know, and then what's happened is, is that he got famous because of that. And then he wrote his book, 12 Rules of Life. And I feel like, and my hope is, is that now we're circling back to his earlier work and sort of the stuff that's, that's, um, I think potentially much more, uh, impactful because you know, what he, what the, the maps of meaning and the archetypes and all that sort of stuff is really connecting with, it's really connecting again with that very tribal way of thinking, um, which weird culture desperately needs because we become disconnected for, from it. You look a lot of what Jordan's work fulfills. It's a lot of what weird culture gets wrong, right? It's a lot of, that sense of place and purpose and there being structure and us doing what young people need, which is that they need to have a structured minimal rule set, right? Like what you're doing with education is, is that you're giving people rules to play within, play the game within, right? Like little kids, they get to play games and they get to do things, but the rule set is fairly limited, right? We're not going to let you manage money. You're not going to have any firearms, no driving, you know, and you have to be in bed by a certain time. And then as you as you get older, the rule set expands out and the sorts of moves that are possible to you get much, much bigger. But the problem is, is that there's such an obsession with individuality in Western culture and with self-determination. And it's been fetishized to such a degree that we don't give people the structure and the path that they need in order to be able to find that. So I think so much of why people have resonated with Jordan is because he has provided literally 12 rules for life, a structure, right? And that in a larger sense, like that's ultimately what the maps of meaning stuff and all of that is about is it's about having, you know, an even deeper sense of what our roles are within society and um, being able to have a place within the community and within the tribe. Yeah. I find his message on, responsibility being directly connected with meaning to be uh, very powerful in our times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is, is that, you know, um, you know, we need purpose. Like we are, we are creatures of purpose and we are creatures of meaning. I mean, for me, you know, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning is that book changed my life. Like that is one of the greatest books ever written. And, you know, I think that if you don't have purpose, I think you're fucked. And I think that so many of the psychological ailments that we have, the sense of disconnection, the sense of feeling lost, the overeating, the depression, all of that, a lot of that would be solved by people taking on a problem. And one of the best things that I, you know, right around the time that I was reading uh, Man's Search for Meaning, um, and I can, it seems like I'm engaging the format of what you're doing here. And it's like, if we talk about a book, we should explain what the book is. So do you want me to explain Man's Search for Meaning? Sure. Give a quick explanation. So Victor Frankl, uh, was a psychologist and, um, <clears throat> he was Jewish. And so during World War II, he had a book that he had been working on that it was his whole, that was his life's work, Right. And so then he uh, he gets arrested by the Nazis and he gets sent to Auschwitz and he gets separated from his wife and he gets separated from his manuscript because they're like, you're not fucking keeping your book. 
right? <laughs> like, sorry. So his life's work is gone. And then he's in the concentration camp away from his wife. And he's, you know, like, uh, and there was a whole group of Jewish scientists who were put into the concentration camp and still continued with their science and their math and their investigation and their writing and whatever else within those environments. There's a famous story about uh, some Jewish mathematicians who decided since they had the time, they would actually test uh, what happened when you flip a coin and did you get 50% heads and 50% tails? And they flipped the coins something like thousands and thousands of times to finally test this thing, which no one before would have ever bothered to actually test. Um, so, but Frankel sits there as a psychologist and he starts to observe and he starts to observe who survives and who dies because he realizes that in the, con in the context of the concentration camp, you know, there's a thousand tiny choices that people are making throughout the day that are making the decisions of whether they, you know, are healthy enough to survive, whether they get picked for elimination and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, it's not to say that people who died in the concentration camp chose it, but, you know, he talked, for example, about the beard of despair, right? And he was like, once you would see that people would stop shaving and they would grow the beard of despair, it meant they had given up. And that they were not long for this world. Right? That's like the sweatpants um, of despair right now in coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you're seeing a lot of beards of despair, right? Um, you, you know, uh, and mustaches of hope. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, the, <laughs> the point is, is that, you know, he realized that there were these tells or, you know, making the effort to make sure that your clothes were relatively clean or things like that. And so he started trying to figure out why it was that some people were, were going to had the will to live, essentially. Um, and he noticed that it was basically it came down to purpose and that if he was going to make it out of this, he needed to pick a purpose so that he could survive. And he told the story of, you know, one guy who felt that he had to survive the war so he could find his children. Now, Frankel knew that in reality, this guy's kids, you know, may or may not be dead, probably were dead, and that it didn't make any difference. But the belief in that was enough to get the guy to fight to have his food, to stay healthy, to stay fit, to take care of himself, to, you know, stand up straight, to avoid elimination, to not snap at the guards, to do all these sorts of things that gave him a slightly higher, higher probability of living. And so at some point during this whole experience, you know, obviously, if we're talking about social distancing and, you know, sanitary conditions and all of that, that was not the concentration camps. And so disease would, you know, there was all the, the people who died in the gas chambers, but there were also, you know, disease would rip through the barracks of the concentration camps like no one's business. And so at some point, Frankel had typhus and he's lying there you know, dying of typhus. And he knows that if he falls asleep, he will never wake up because he's a medical doctor first and foremost, right? And uh, so what he does is he finds some little scraps of paper and on those little scraps of paper, he keeps himself awake by trying to reconstruct the book that had been taken from him. And that becomes his way of living and his way of surviving the concentration camps. And then after going through that concentration camps, he wrote this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And the first half of the book is him talking about his experiences in the concentration camp. And then the second half of the book is him applying those lessons to his, to his patients. And he finds again and again that when he helped people find purpose, that 
they suddenly a whole bunch of other problems in their lives resolve. Because what purpose does is it guides our choices. It guides everything. You know, it's the why, right? It's the why of why do we shave uh, our, why do we shave our beards? Why do we get up? Why do we exercise? You know, why do we do the things that we do, right? And for me, the funny thing is, and this brings this conversation sort of full circle in a way, is that, you know, I knew that in high school I had had a purpose and that purpose was to go to Harvard. And then I got there and it was the, in many ways, the worst thing that could have happened to me because I had lost my purpose. Like I was like, what am I living for now? I'm already here. Right. Um, and it's not what I thought I would be. I thought it would be all these other things. And so after college, I real I read Victor Frankl's man search for meeting on the elliptical at 24 hour fitness. Um, and I realized I needed to pick a purpose and that it needed to be a big enough and difficult enough goal that it could guide my life. And for me, it was fixing education. And, you know, like everything that, that I've given to education is nothing compared to what I've gotten out of education, because that problem is so big and so hairy that it just consistently guides my choices. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the thing is, is that pick a purpose. Doesn't you know, I had no idea how to do it. And I've spent the last 15 years figuring out as much as I figured out. There's a lot more to figure out. It's obviously not fixed. And, you know, but the, the value is, is that you will always be trying to fix whatever this big hairy problem is. Well said, well said. Um, well, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I just have one last subject that I want to ask you about because I would be remiss if I didn't get mi uh, Mr. Metacognition's uh, thoughts on the largest <laughs> social experiment in the history of the world. And uh, I won't ask it in such a broad stroke. Um, I'll get a little bit more specific. Um, one thing that I have been very worried about recently um, with this virus is um, tribalism. And I was worried, I've been worried about tribalism for a few years. Um, but I think that, um, you know, with most disasters, what they can do is bring people together. One of my favorite books is Tribe, which um, where Sebastian Younger talks about how in a big disaster, you see an increase in social cohesion and meaning. Um, and a lot of uh, you know soldiers from the war will sheepishly talk about how um, battle was the best time in their life because they felt that kind of social cohesion. And Younger argues that a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't actually come from the instance itself, but the atomization that soldiers are forced into once they come home. Um, and this is a huge disaster, you know, on a planetary level, everyone is dealing with this pandemic, but at the same time, it's, it's also engineered in some ways for social breakdown because we are now being forced to isolate and in, and when we want to come together now, um, more than ever, um, and given that populism was has been on the rise since Trump um, already, it really worries me what is going to happen now that we are around less people, um, you know, talking to less groups and and for who knows how long. Um, 
And, you know, on a personal level, like I grew up in Santa Cruz, which is a largely white area. Um, and I have really opened my mind and I think become um, a more kind of thoughtful person through the experience of travel um, and also through the experience of having a podcast, getting to kind of hurl myself into rooms that I have no business being in. Um, have It's kind of turned up the dial on my empathy muscle, which I think is... Um, it, it, it's a real asset for humans to, um, to, you know, to flex that muscle. Um, and given the pandemic, um, I think that there's real um, danger in, in us losing that muscle more than we have been already. Do you have any thoughts on um, this pandemic and how it relates to tribalism? Well, we, we talked about this a little bit before. Like, if you think about, you know, it's very hard to get any human experimentation approved, right? Like, if you want to get a, if you want to try a drug or a pharmaceutical or a surgical procedure on someone, or if you want to do a psych experiment, it's very hard for it to get approved. And if you had pitched what we're living through right now as a scientific experiment that you wanted to do and get approved, like, I'm going to socially isolate half the world's population and they won't be allowed to, like, touch each other or, I mean, this is, this is, this, this is the stuff that the, that the Nazis did, but like not since then has it been scientifically approved. Like people need human touch. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's, there's a long history of scientific literature where they have experimented with depriving people of touch. Um, and, you know, the evidence is so clear on how bad that is that you're not allowed to do those experiments anymore, right? So I think there's a there's a couple of things, and I think two two emotions just to sort of frame the whole discussion are one sadness and two uh, disgust. So sad, you know, every emotion has an evolutionary function; it exists for a particular reason, right? And you know, um, if you have you ever seen the movie uh, Inside Out, the Pixar movie? Oh, it's a great movie. It's an amazing movie. I, and I, I cried when the imaginary uh, friend fell oh, into the depths. Oh, the depths of Bing Bong <laughs> no! is, you know, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I bawled my eyes out. I'm probably going to start crying now if I start thinking about Bing Bong. <laughs> Who's the friend? Um, but, but, you know, the, the whole thrust of that movie is what is the purpose of sadness? And what people don't realize, and the great sort of behind-the-scenes story of that, is just that there's a load of neuroscience in that movie so that movie the consultants on that movie were paul ekman um and dr keltner so dr keltner is not far from you by the way and if you've never inter interviewed him kyle you too it's a bromance waiting to happen um so uh where so does he live keltner he he lives in i think he's at berkeley like he's super super close by to you um i'm in and he's incredible Okay, so, so, so Ekman, there, were, there had been this question whether human facial expressions were universal, right? And some people thought that human facial expressions were acculturated, that you learn them from your culture, and some people thought that they were inborn and ingrained, right? And so Ekman was the guy who went to Papua New Guinea and found tribes that hadn't been contacted and showed them photos of human facial expressions and then got them to describe what the emotion was and basically used this to test and prove that it was actually, there was, you know, this was baked into our biology. 
right? Now, there's a wrinkle there because there are also aspects of acculturation. So, for example, there's a great experiment that was done where they, you know, usually when they try and experimentally elicit emotions, they'll show you things that will elicit those emotions. So, you show people, you know, pictures of severed limbs and stuff like that, you're going to elicit very strong emotions from them, right? And if they're not eliciting strong emotions, something is usually neurologically wrong. Um, something, some of the wiring has been cut or whatever, and there's a, there's a, a whole bunch of literature there. But anyway, the um, the point is, is that what they found was if you show these images to Japanese people, that they wouldn't have any emotional reaction, and they're like, "What the fuck is wrong?" Like, you know, usually it's only psychopaths who don't have these reactions. And they realized that actually the confounding variable was whether they were being observed or not. So they would keep this stoic face when they were being observed by scientists because there was the group and you had to maintain a face for the rest of the group. But when they weren't being observed and they were in private, they would have all of those normal reactions and all the emotions would play out, right? So it was socially conditioned, but the underlying biology is all the same, which is, is that people naturally feel, have certain facial expressions, right? But all of these emotions have a particular function. And so Keltner studied under Ekman. Um, and basically what the whole thing that Inside Out answers is what does sadness do? And sadness brings your team to come help. When Riley cries at the end, the only thing that she wants is her parents, right? And she wants her team, she wants her tribe to be there for her. And the second that the parents see her being sad, all their anger and frustration in her melts away and suddenly the family comes together, right? And so that's what sadness does. And what happens is, is that, you know, we need that social cohesion. We need that tribe around us. And you talk about the experience of, you know, what Younger talks about and being at war. And that's the experience of having a really strong tribe that are all there for you. You have that social support. You have that social cohesion. And not only do you have that social support and cohesion, you have purpose, right? You have a mission. And that's what's, you know, part of the reason why war is this peak experience. Not only do you have the band of brothers, it's that you know what you're there to do. Everything is super clear. And that's really, really satisfying for people because that's the experience that we want. And in ordinary life, things are normally already so disconnected and so ambiguous that we don't have that. Um, you know, Sherry Turkle, um, who's a scholar at MIT, she wrote this book called Alone Together. And that's the experience of technology is, is that we are alone together. So we're on social media or whatever, but we're there on our phones, you know, like, you know, tapping away like chimps trying to get a fix of cocaine, right? Like it's, it's, not, it's not healthy and it's not socially connected, but it's this counterfeit experience of it. So, and, you know, while... This is one thing, right? Doing these Zoom calls or doing these podcasts, it is a form of social connection. Touch is super important, like physical touch. So I saw an article this morning and I'm full disclosure, you know, I didn't fully dig into it. So this stuff may have been taken out of context. But, you know, Dr. Fauci was talking about how he thought that after this epidemic, handshakes would be a thing of the past. We wouldn't do handshakes anymore, right? And, you know, again, it may have been taken out of context, but I'm sure some people will be having that reaction. And that is a horrible fucking idea. This is such a bad fucking idea. Yes, transmission of disease is a real thing. And yes, we have to be aware of that. But we also have to be aware of how powerfully primed for touch we are. 
touch releases oxytocin, it creates social cohesion, it creates social connection. The worst thing you can do to an infant is deprive them of their of their mother's touch, of human touch, of their parents' touch. Like that's the worst thing that you can do to 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 someone, right? So the idea that we would somehow deny ourselves touch after this thing was over is a is a horrible fucking idea. Um, so the problem is is that our team can't come help right now. And they can't come help through that experience of touch, which is so primarily what we need. So we can try and approximate the things that we need in terms of Zoom calls or talking or whatever, but it's not the same thing as a hug. It's not the same thing as a handshake. It's not that thing that Riley gets at the end of Inside Out, right? So we're being denied the things that our biology primarily needs. And so if you look at, you know, there's a whole bunch of disruptions that have happened. People have been denied their routines. They've been denied the opportunity for touch. They've been denied those opportunities for cohesion. So if you look at touch, for example, there's a study that was done where they looked at uh, Brits, Americans, and then it was some sort of Latin American culture, Cubans or something like that, various, various different cultures. And they just had two people from this culture sit down and have a conversation. And they looked at how much they touched each other. Right. And the, you know, uh, Brits touched each other, I think, zero times during the conversation. The Americans touched each other twice. And then the Latin American culture, it was like hundreds of times, like just little arm touches and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Right. And people actually like some some evolutionary biologists thinks that think that that's because of disease. So the, the, even without sort of understanding consciously what this stuff is, like culture evolves without us knowing why it's happening. So if you're in a cold environment where you're already susceptible and at risk of infectious diseases, then what ends up happening is that without even consciously realizing it, and this is, this is the thing about culture is it's not, it evolves without us even knowing that it's evolving. Because again, we're not causally intelligent enough as individuals to realize how these patterns are being shaped. But you evolve a culture where you touch less, right? Even our languages are shaped to our ambient temperature, right? So if you listen to languages from the tropics like Hawaiian, they have these big open sounds, aloha, right? Mahalo, right? It's these very open sounds. If you listen to languages from places like Poland and Russia, it's all consonant heavy. It's like, you know, right? And that's because of where they're being spoken. Languages like Polish and Russian are being spoken with people super close to each other indoors, right? Whereas in tropics, you're speaking over large distances and people are open, right? And so it has to be able to sound, has to be able to travel. You have to deal with wind, right? All that sort of stuff. So things like that, our cultures are shaped by our environment without us even fucking realizing. So the touch thing is a super important thing that already was happening and being shaped by disease long before we knew about the coronavirus or any of these other things. But we're now being all forced into that position of not being able to have that touch. So that's the, that's the sadness part, right? And we need to be aware of that. And we have to understand that there's the risk of disease, but there's also the risks that come from social isolation and all the psychological risks that are like PTSD. And so if you're t thinking about, okay, we all don't, we don't want to die of the coronavirus, but we also don't want PTSD and we don't want depression. So uh, we're going to have to figure out how to balance these risks and how to deal with these risks. 
Um, and particularly old people who are particularly susceptible to the coronavirus, you know, a lot of what the experience of old people in Western culture, that is not true in a lot of traditional cultures, not true in places like Japan, is that they are incredibly socially isolated. And a lot of the, if you, if you look at some of what the old people have been writing about this, they're like, I'm even more alone now. And that's awful. And obviously they don't want to die of coronavirus, but making them even more isolated is awful. So that's, that's that. The other part is disgust, okay? Now, the function of disgust, which, again, is inside out. You know, everybody just watched this movie. It's a brilliant movie. Um, but the function of disgust is to protect people from disease. So, you know, we are disgusted by rotting food. We are disgusted by things that smell bad, right? And that disgust mechanism gets us to avoid potential sources of disease. Now, that even the discussed mechanism changes. So pregnant women actually have a stronger sense of smell when they are pregnant because they are particularly susceptible to these things. And so those discussed mechanisms are much more easily triggered. I don't know what your experiences are, but in my experience, women generally just have a much better sense of smell than I do or than other men, right? And in fact, women have a much higher discussed threshold. There's a reason why when a group of guys live together, a bachelor pad looks disgusting. When a group of women live together, it doesn't look anything like that, right? So those discuss mechanisms are, are driving all sorts of choices all of the time. When you get in an environment of disease, the discuss threshold goes way up. So people are much, much more conscious of that. And the problem is, is that disgust is also the emotion that mediates genocide. So if you listen to the rhetoric in any genocide, doesn't matter whether it's the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide, they're always talking about the other group as vermin or insects. In the Rwandan genocide, it was the word inyenzi, which means cockroach, um, because vermin are to be destroyed. They're to be squashed. And Jared Diamond tells a story he told Brian and I, Brian Callen and I, a story that um, he knows of an anthropologist who was studying these two tribes in Papua New Guinea who had been living side by side for ages, you know, sharing the same environment, getting along very well. And then there was an environmental change, and suddenly food resources got scarce. And he watched. The, she, I think it was an, a female anthropologist. She watched this tribe in half an hour talk themselves from thinking of this tribe as friendly neighbors to talking themselves up and they started making up stories. They started lying. They started inventing all these fictions and narratives until they had convinced themselves that their neighbors were vermin who needed to be exterminated. And they went and they wiped out the other tribe. So the, your fears are entirely justified. Um, especially because most people do not practice very much metacognition. You know, most people don't understand what sadness is for or what disgust is for or what the dangers of disgust are for, right? And that these emotions have to be very deliberately applied. So, you know, Trump de deploys disgust all the time. Drain the swamp was a, was a disgust response, right? And that disgust can be really constructive, right? Disgust can lead to social reform. Disgust was what motivated, you know, the, the founding of the Food and Drug Administration, right? Because uh, Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle. America was disgusted by how its meat was being produced. And they were like, we have to clean that shit up. We have to drain the swamp. But 
if disgust starts being applied to particular ethnic groups, or if disgust starts being deployed towards certain tribes, that's really fucking dangerous. And the problem is, is that when you're in an environment where there's a lot of elevated disgust already, and the social distancing is there where there's not that social cohesion because of touch and because people are feeling good, it's, it's, there is the danger of that. I think we have to be really conscious of what those dangers are and be managing that within ourselves and then managing it in, in what we're seeing in the communities around us. And by simply being aware of it, that can be a helpful first step. Huge, huge. And I mean, I think that's the thing is, is that it's really just understanding what that, and it's, that's the, that's the other key thing. None of these, and that's part of the point of Inside Out, none of these emotions are bad. They all have a function, but it's understanding what the function is and deploying them consciously in the right way and towards the right things. Um, and that's that's really the key. Meditate to metacognate. <laughs> Hunter Mott, um, thank you so much, man. I enjoy our conversations thoroughly and appreciate um, all the thinking and communication that you do to make our world a better place. Kyle Tierman, I thank you for making me feel like I could be a surfer and feel (laughs) cool um, just by hanging around you. Uh, Well, the lessons will keep coming once this uh, social distancing stops. I'll give you a a compliment, but you are a a tenacious beginner surfer. I take a lot of people surfing (laughs) once and then they're done with it. But I think I've I've taken you six or seven times and you still uh, have the enthusiasm even when you go head over heels at uh, the Venice breakwater. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's it when i the thing that i actually one of the things i actually really like about surfing is getting my butt kicked like i actually find that act of being humiliated really helpful and humbled um so and you know i mean i think that's the thing is there's nothing more humbling than the ocean it's like yeah this thing is so much bigger and so much more powerful than you and you need to know your place and you need to treat it with fucking respect and I love that feeling. Yeah, there's also a great metaphor in those experiences of getting your butt kicked because the safest thing you can do is relax. Yeah. So more. Well, and I think I think that's that's a great metaphor for kind of what we all need to do right now, because I think that's the thing is is that you know we're all getting our butt kicked, and if we start thrashing at it, we're not going to be able to get through it. Um, and it's, it's also true for learning as well. Like learning will kick your butt, but you have to learn to relax into it and just sort of go with it. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time. Is there a place where people can reach you and learn more about your work? Uh, yeah, you, so the, there's lots of resources on the Straight A Conspiracy website. Mixed Metal Arts also has a podcast, which has a bunch of free, super easy to read articles that break down a lot of these concepts. Um, you can reach me. I'm actually pretty inactive right now on social media, but you can always reach me, um, at my, probably either my Twitter or my Instagram account, which is just my first name, last name. Um, and then there are a bunch of actually really fun, really cool things 
that I'm working on that I would love to talk to you about at some point um, that I think you'd be really interested around sustainability and conservation. Um, so that would be really good. You have an open invitation on this podcast, my friend. That sounds amazing. That's the show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Carry Us Slow by a band called Carry Us Slow. And I will link to their page in the show notes below. You can go to my website, kyle.surf, to check out my latest story on my attempt to stay silent and not use my phone for a whole day. I hope that it gives you a little chuckle amidst the darkness that is life. Uh, there's more than darkness. Like, there's uh, there's the ocean. That's a cool spot. And if it's legal for you to get inside that big blue wet body of water uh you should go do that immediately i've got a ton of podcasts coming out over the next week or two i'm going to be just blasting these things out like two or three a week so come back soon and i hope that you all have a wonderful day and once again get out in the water if you can six feet away of course see you soon Thought I